back to the Fourth Way Podcast. In the last episode, we took a look at what advocating for a Christian participation in government should logically lead to, if we were consistent. While many American Christians think that the post-Constantinian church, the crusading church, the Church of the Inquisition, and the Church of the Magisterial Reformers is incongruent with a biblical view of Christians and government, the last episode showed us how those manifestations of evil and violence were really the logical conclusion of Christian involvement in government. If Christians believe in objective morality, they believe that the Old Testament shows God handing the world an idea of a just society, and the government is to bear the sword— then it only makes sense for the government to be the righteous arm of the church in the physical sphere. The church may hold the keys to the kingdom, but as the Westminster Confession, the original one at least, before the rebels changed it, show us that the government is to bear the sword for the church. It could be no other way if God's laws are objective and the government's role is to execute both laws and lawbreakers. The persecutions, inquisitions, crusades, and tortures of old weren't bad because the people were worse than we are, or were ignorant barbarians. In fact, we call many of these killers and torturers our church fathers. They used the same Bible we do, and often had a much better grasp of the Bible as a whole than we do today. There hasn't been any new revelation that makes us better than them. What makes us better today is that, one, we are inconsistent, And two, we lack the power that they had, the opportunity. And thank God for that, right? On on both counts. I thank God that we're inconsistent in our application of our theology when it comes to government. And I thank God that we don't have the power to be consistent and to, to harm others. Because history tells us that that's what we probably would do were we given the power. It's why Jesus, at least in part, said, hey, don't lord power over others like the Gentiles do. Now, all of this might make it sound like I'm, I'm down on the church, and that is not the case at all. In fact, you know, as, a, as a missionary, part of the reason we went with the organization we did is because it's a church planting organization, which means that um, we value the church, and um, nothing against... Um, parachurch ministries, they, they definitely have their place. But um, whenever we, when we go somewhere, we want to connect people to the church because we believe that that's the institution that God, God set up. That's the, the body. That's his body. And I value the church. For as, as flawed and marred as she often is, I love the church. And I, I don't think that there really is anything uniquely corrupting about the church that makes it crueler than other, other institutions or, or other ideologies. And that's because in general, ideologies as ends aren't really the problem, but rather the means that we use to accomplish those ends. For instance, with Christianity, it's, a, it, it's wonderful that holiness is desired and pursued. Right? That's, that's a good thing to want to be holy and to want to be morally good. If we had a world where there were, was more truth and less lies, more faithfulness and less adultery, more love and, uh, and less hate, it would, it would just be a better place. I think that's, that's an objective, objectively true statement. And that's a beautiful end goal. But where Christianity starts to get ugly is in the means that it uses to pursue the goal of holiness. Do we pick up stones to kill the adulterer because she wasn't holy? 
Do we fight a war or hate our enemies to protect ourselves and to exact vengeance and rid the world of their unholiness? While simultaneously spreading our purity, right? When we become consequentialists, justifying the pursuit of good ends through evil or unholy means, that's where Christianity really becomes ugly. And I mean, the same goes for for other ideologies too, right? Science is a wonderful thing as it pursues knowledge and the effectual manipulation of the physical world, often for good. Hey, let's cure cancer. But when Nazis justify experimenting on Jews, Americans justify experimenting on prisoners or African Americans, or we justify dropping atomic bombs to see what happens to people in real life when when they get zapped by nuclear radiation, largely for the sake of gaining knowledge or, or some other outcome that we might think is good, science becomes hideous. So in the last episode, my whole point wasn't that Christianity is hideous when followed to its logical end, but rather that Christianity's pursuit of its beautiful end by using the means uh, that are inappropriate to it in, in this series, name, that those means those inappropriate means are namely government and lording power over others, like the Gentiles do, that produces evil, regardless of what we say the ends are. In this episode, I'm going to flip things around a little in order to look at some of the ways government as a means corrupts the Christian trajectory towards the good. The first way Christianity is corrupted by mingling with government is in the very core of Christianity's being. Jesus said that bearing cross and being persecuted were expectations for Christians, and a willingness and expectation to suffer, even at the hands of evil and for seemingly purposeless reasons, are the core of Christianity. I mean, isn't that pretty much exactly what Jesus showed us? He, he resisted the temptations of the devil for power. Um, he resisted Peter telling him not to suffer. He resisted calling the legions of angels to do what? to go to the cross, this foolish thing that, that even Jesus was like, can't you take this away from me? There's got to be another way. Um, but Jesus submitted to foolishness um, and, and threw aside every, uh, every attempt to crown him king or to give him power or to reduce his suffering. Now we can talk about the, the pragmatic aspect of this, of course. I mean, trials and suffering might grow our virtue. They can help us to exhibit faith in God. They can provide us opportunities to love beyond comprehension so that when people see love that we have for enemies, they, they can just be astounded. And you can't explain that any other way but but God and the Holy Spirit working in, in somebody's heart to do that, to, to offer forgiveness or love. Um, I mean, the, the list could go on, right? So persecution and suffering are, are, are valuable means that, that God has employed. But when you start to rule in government, by government, with government, uh, especially if, if you're the, uh, the majority contingent there, then that largely erases this core aspect of Christianity. So I want you to first hear the words of an ancient Christian, um, Salvian, who was writing around the mid-400s, so around the time of the fall of Rome. In his book, On the Government of God, Salvian explains the many reasons why Rome is falling, and he blames a lot of his own group, the Christians. He says they're messed up and immoral, and this is God's judgment. And uh, one of the things that he says in particular about the Christians, I think, is, is really pertinent to our current discussion. So here, Quovi, uh, Salvian, in this quote, 
Quote, Our faith and devotion are the more due him because he demands lesser services from us and has foregone the greater exactions. Since even our princes are Christian, there's no persecution and religion is not disturbed. We who are not forced to test our faith by harsher trials ought certainly to seek the more to please God in small ways, for he by whom trifles are duly performed proves that if occasion arises, he will be capable of greater things. End quote. So Salvian's basically saying, hey guys, since we've got it super easy here, since even our princes, right, our government, are Christians, uh, we need to be faithful in really small things because that's the only way we're going to practice to be faithful in big things. So Salvian notes that that cross is ultimately nowhere to be found in, in his Rome. Uh, only comfort is to be found. He implores Christians to at least seek hardship and discipline in, in the small things, but he recognized that uh, recognized that solid Christianity is non-existent in his day. Leonard Verdun, in his book, uh, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren, also goes into this concept of cross. Hear what Verdun says. Quote, It goes without saying that when Christianity is thrust into the sacral pattern, cross-bearing becomes obsolete, there being no further occasion or opportunity for it. Who would vent his spleen, and on whom, and for what? The erstwhile tensions subside in the climate of Christendom. The controverting speech from the beyond is no longer heard. Autosoterism is again enthroned. What further cross-bearing will there, can there be? On the other hand, a new content was poured into the expression bearing the cross, whereas the New Testament reserves the expression for the unpleasant experiences that are wont to follow upon the Christian. The expression was now made to connote the sufferings that dog our footsteps because we are men. End quote. So Verduin hits on something I've mentioned a number of times before in this podcast. Christians have taken the concept of cross, which is supposed to mean specific suffering that results from decisions we make in regard to holiness, integrity, and following Jesus, and we turn it into, as Verduin says, the sufferings that dog our footsteps because we are men. Or to put it differently, everyday life. The stub toes, the colds, the layoff, the cancer, whatever. We make those out to be cross. Interestingly, every non-Christian is then bearing their crosses, and many far greater crosses than we are as Christians. But that's the kind of path you have to take when your group is in power, and you know that cross is supposed to be a central aspect of your life. You have to find crosses everywhere. When your religiosity is comfort without cost, you have to find a way to get around that. So we don't really have to bear our crosses, we invent them. It's spiritual inflation. And that is the first result of government on Christianity. It waters Christianity down by making the religion sacral, which gives the government control and incentivizes the people to conform to the life and lingo in order to have power in society. And power equates to comfort. The second influence government has on Christianity is that it corrupts it. Now, Jesus was all about integrity. He did the right thing because it was the right thing, no matter what it cost him, because he knew that God was in control. He could leave the outcome in God's hands. He said hard things, he did uncomfortable things, and ultimately he submitted to the foolish means of the cross in order to love his enemies. The apostles and early Christians did the same thing. Paul boasted in his beatings, and Peter advocated bearing up under injustice without sinning against our persecutors. 
Christianity does not compromise for seeming effectiveness. It calls us to refuse the sin of Adam and the great temptation of the second Adam, which is to define good and evil for ourselves, to determine the means and course of our own actions. We are to submit to the means of God, not merely just seek his ends. But the government corrupts this in all kinds of ways. Not only do most governments require all sorts of moral compromises and choosing of lesser evils, but power itself tends to corrupt corrupt individuals and capture them in lies, greed, and other evils. Lording power over others also involves doing violence to, or being willing to do violence to others, whether one is a police officer or in the military, a judge who sentences people to death or or, um, confinement, a congresswoman who makes laws backed by the sword, or a president who's a commander-in-chief and controls the armies. Many government roles require Christians to set aside what is perhaps the greatest of all principles, the sanctity of life. So we go from the anti-Nicene fathers saying we can't have magistrates who rule with the sword, soldiers who shed blood, proconsuls who condemn to death, or even be a bystander who watches another put to death justly. We've gone from that to participating in death in any form related to government or individual self-defense, save for abortion. So yeah, government corrupts our morals. The third and final way I'll identify in which the government corrupts the church is in the way it essentially castrates the church. The church is meant to be an alternative kingdom. It is to depict to the world the way things are to be and the way things will be. That's why the early church saw the prophecy of swords being turned into plowshares as having been fulfilled in their day, and they saw that there were no poor among them, and that was a fulfillment of the passage in Deuteronomy where God says, hey, look, among my people, there should be no poor among you, right, if you follow my commands. And Acts shows us that, hey, there were no needy among them. Like It's, it's fulfilled. The church is the fulfillment of um, that Old Testament time where Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, rules in power. God's kingdom has come, as Jesus himself said. It's here now. And the church is to expand that kingdom. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As an American, I have wondered my whole life why the church is so persecuted in many other countries. Because to me, it seemed ridiculous to view the church as a threat. Why do governments care if if your church? I mean, we're we're some of the most patriot like as Americans, we're some of the most patriotic government supporting people there are. Why would governments not like churches? I mean, I, I just go to church and sing songs on Sunday and live as an American citizen 24-7 the rest of the time. Uh, we say pledge allegiance in our schools, especially Christian schools. I mean, Christian schools, uh, definitely, like most of them say they've got American flags all over the place. They say the pledge every day. Uh, a lot of churches have American flags there. Why would the government have a problem with me? And even our church events... Uh, not not mine personally at the moment, but you know, a, a lot of churches have uh, basically American events, right? You just grill out and watch fireworks on the 4th of July or something like that. You know, but as I read more and more church history, and as I read about heroes of the faith from around the world, contemporary as well as, as ancient, um, I, I've realized that the church as an alternative kingdom and the church as a prophetic voice is, 
is extremely powerful. It doesn't conform to the world or the government. And we've mentioned Havel's work before, which exposes even small truths as being a huge threat to the house of cards, which is government propaganda and control. But when the government co-opts the church, which is somewhat like Erastianism, it, it ends up neutering the church. Rather than being a prophetic voice or a wilderness prophet, as the, the true prophets of God are called, the church becomes filled with court prophets. Whereas the wilderness prophets were willing to suffer for truth and hold the government's feet to the fire about injustice and tell kings things that they didn't want to hear, court prophets, which were always far more numerous because their job was way more cush, the court prophets told the kings what they wanted to hear. Reinhold Niebuhr wrote a great article on this, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes, where he kind of explains how this was happening even in his day. It was like the, the 70s, I think, um, and, and how it was happening at his time. And he explains the court prophets and wilderness prophets really well. But being a court prophet provides you with comfort and it gets you closer to the king, which in theory gives you more influence and therefore more power. And many court prophets, because they're consequentialists, justify their positions their compromises, and their scratching of itching ears by arguing that those lesser evils of telling kings what they want to hear and uh, you know, rubbing shoulders with them, that's ultimately going to bring about a greater good. And they're seeking the ends of God, right? And in that, the members of the body, for whom Christ is the head, become little gods and little heads unto themselves, determining good and evil as they see fit. The church is no longer the pure institution which speaks into the government, but rather an institution which is dependent on government and essentially guided by, by its actions. Our views end up becoming controlled by our politics, and our actions are influenced by our kickbacks. We don't want to lose tax incentives, so we have to vote a particular way, rather than asking why we have those incentives in the first place and whether or not those foster a prophetic church. We may want to help the poor, which is a great thing, but then we end up putting the initiative and money in the hands of the government to solve the problem of poverty rather than doing justice to the extent that the church should be doing it and making sure that there are no poor among us as God said there shouldn't be. When the church mingles with government, the church stops being who it is meant to be and doing what it is meant to do. It's why people get mad at you for not voting, but Don't think twice if you don't volunteer to help at the food pantry. What good is the church going to do by volunteering at the food pantry? But our vote? Oh, our votes are precious. They're gold. Government is savior. Government can change the world. But what's the church going to do? Feed a few people? Getting a church which gains governmental power is scary and ends up being not very Christ-like at all. But having a church which has become subservient to government, rather than its master, is also alarming in that it fails to be a prophetic body of Christ, and it fails to be distinct. One church is a church that is dead, and the other, a church which makes others dead. Both are abominations, and both arise in large part from the way that they seek to mingle with the Gentile means of lording power over others, government and the sword. Today is actually a special day, and one which is perfect timing to commemorate with an episode like this. April 9th, 2022, 
marks 77 years since the execution of Dietrich Bonhoeffer by a regime which puppeteered the Christian church in Germany. Bonhoeffer was a wilderness prophet, while the vast majority of Christians in Germany, for the sake of power and to rule like the Gentiles do, coddled the Nazi regime and scratched its itching ears. Bonhoeffer may have ended up dead, but he did what was right. He helped to save lives, and he ended up a hero rather than a forgotten, sniveling, compromised psychophant left in the rubbish heap of history. Bonhoeffer conquered as Christ did, and we honor him for overcoming the world. Bonhoeffer, though imprisoned, was one of the few German Christians who lived free. Hopefully he can inspire us to, in Christ, live free as well. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.